Okay, so it's great to see everyone here today, um, and I'm very happy to be here presenting. Um, I should say, first of all, that I don't count myself as an ethnographer, so I just actually take some show of hands again and the question of who would count themselves as an ethnographer in the room. Okay, so actually it's less than I thought, <laughs> but I'm assuming that most people are interested in ethnography and that's why you're here, which is probably where I would class myself more. Um, I think one of the reasons that Emily invited me, or perhaps not, um, was that I wrote a book chapter um, a couple of years back um, where I was looking at the types of ethnography that had been done in higher education, something which I thought anyway hadn't really been talked about very much, so I was quite curious actually to see uh, what existed and what had been done. So I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about um, what I discovered. And um, I'll say a bit about how I see ethnography from my perspective. And then I think also picking up on some of the challenges there that Emily was talking about in terms of, you know, I don't class myself as an ethnographer, but I certainly think that some of the research that I've done, which uses mul multiple qualitative um, data collection methods um, and are often quite in-depth, then, you know, perhaps could come under the banner of kind of informed at least by ethnographic ideas and principles. So I think that's also quite an important challenge for us to, to think about and consider. Um, Emily mentioned South Africa and I'll say a little bit at the end of the presentation as to why I've got this, this picture up here and why I'm going to South Africa at a, um, an ungodly hour at 4.30 tomorrow morning <laughs> the taxi's coming to pick me up in, in Bristol. Okay then, so just starting off with thinking about what ethnography is. So I've just got a very sort of straightforward um, idea definition here from um, Alveson, um, which talks about, um, as Emily was saying, this idea of it being a longer period of fieldwork, however we determine that, that, that idea of longer, in which the researcher tries to get close to the community, the organisation, the groups, the people that they, they want to work with who are being studied, and relies on their accounts as well as on observations um, of a rich um, variety of naturally occurring events, as well as other materials, so including documents or material artefacts, and has an interest in cultural issues, meaning symbols, ideas, and assumptions. And I think this is a useful um, sort of set of ideas of what ethnography is in the sense that it kind of captures that sense of it being more in-depth, you're spending a lot of time with a particular set of group of people or, or community. Um, also the sort of rich diversity of the types of research and data collection methods that you might be using and what that might involve. And then I think also thinking about the notion of culture and understandings of culture as kind of being at the centre of, of what we think about when, when um, we talk about ethnography. Um, so ethno and graphy. So ethno means people, graphy means to describe. So essentially it's the idea of understanding people, um, understanding culture to some extent um, is what we're thinking about. Um, and then from my own perspective, I think anyway, one of the challenges, um, and there's a good quote here that I've taken from Sue Clegg's work, um, it's kind of a challenge to people working in higher education where what she's basically arguing is that a lot of what we do is based on interview research, which doesn't necessarily take enough account of the context within which we're working. Um, 
So she talks then about the description of studies as being simply based on interview data being too thin because richly ethnographic data are entailed in interpretation, if only tacitly. So it's as if there is, you know, that context is there, um, but oftentimes when a lot of research is written up in higher education, it kind of focuses on the, the sort of um, accounts of, of individuals, of participants within the study, and less about the context, although she's saying that it's there implicitly, but maybe what we don't do is draw that out um, substantively enough. And I do think, actually, that that is an important challenge, and why I think it's great that Emily set this um, session up and, and, and other sessions on ethnography to really think about how we can um, change that as an approach within HE. Um, and then um, Atkinson also, um, you know, kind of, I guess to some extent, um, you know, he's saying, so whilst I do not want to fetishise such things, I do insist on ethnographic fieldwork that involves some degree of direct participation and observation that constitutes a radically distinctive way of understanding social activity in situ. So again, that's about establishing, you know, what's unique, what, what can ethnography bring to the study of higher education that takes us beyond um, a lot of what might be seen as the kind of interview studies or, you know, sort of more generic qualitative research. Not to say that that doesn't produce good work, but it's, again, it's that kind of challenge of how do we account for the context and, you know, what kind of rich ethnographic work could we do more um, and in situ in terms of, you know, where we're collecting that data from. Okay, then, I do talk a lot, so, and there's a lot of information on these slides, so, you know, feel free to ask questions or stop me if I'm talking too much about things that you already know about, um, but Emily's going to keep me to time, but I will try and get through at least most of what I'm, I'm trying to say here. Um, so I'll go through some of the detail of this, but maybe not all of it. But what I just wanted to give you a sense of is what I came up with when I did this book chapter. And I really enjoyed doing it, actually, because it's not being an ethnographer. It was really interesting for me to, to look at the types of studies that had been done using ethnographic work across um, higher education. And I ended up separating it out into sort of three different areas. Um, so talking about the ethnography of student life, student cultures and student learning. Then also the ethnographic exploration of university and disciplinary organisations and cultures. And then lastly, I mean there wasn't as much on this, but I think it's an interesting area to look at, um, ethnography and higher education governance and policy. So people kind of actually going into higher education bodies or policy um, making bodies and, and doing ethnographic work within these institutions. So I'm only going to say a little bit more about um, the first two. Um, and then I've got a quote here just from Wes Schumer, again, you know, just kind of emphasising that idea of the importance, really, of um, researching our own institutions and, and, as he says, you know, kind of um, thinking about a kind of critical consciousness around um, the ways in which some of the things that Emily was talking about in terms of funding, but all sorts of aspects um, in terms of globalisation, neoliberalism processes, which are impacting on, on higher education. Okay, so in terms of, so those were the kind of three broad areas that I looked at, but in terms also of the types of ethnography, um, you know, I suppose I came at it with a fairly sort of naive sense of what ethnography was, um, so there were sort of a group which I would call the sort of traditional ethnographers who were people that would go and spend quite a lot of time um, in the field 
Um, there's also Sue Wright's work who talks about, and others do as well, um, I think there's more recent research on this too, um, which thinks about multi-sited ethnographies. So thinking about research which is done not just in one location but in, in a number of locations and then obviously kind of triangulating or thinking about how you can use that different data from different sites. Um, virtual ethnography, we all live in the, the virtual world to some extent, to greater or lesser degrees nowadays, so a lot of research starting to look at um, doing ethnographies in the virtual world. Um, and then autoethnography, which we're going to have a, a presentation of that um, at the end of, of today. Um, and then also fictional ethnography. I don't know if people have come across this idea, but I'll say a little bit more um, about this. I think it's, it's an interesting one. Um, and then something which I didn't mention in the book chapter, but which I've just discovered recently, is something called dual ethnography. Um, again, others might have heard of this. So. That's kind of thinking about ethnography. So autoethnography would be more from the, 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 the self, the single person, and accounts of you know, their positioning in the cultural or social world. Geoethnography focuses on the kind of dialogue. So the sort of um, the duo would be between persons and the ways in which we then co-construct meaning. Um, from that perspective. So that's not something I'm going to say much about today, but I think it's a really, really interesting area um, to think about and obviously coming more from a kind of post-structuralist perspective in terms of that kind of notion of, of, of co-construction. Okay then, so just to say a little bit about some of the research that I looked at um, when I was putting together the, the book chapter. Um, so the first sets of, um, or the first sort of broad area that I was thinking about was in terms of student life, student cultures and student learning. Um, so there was three kind of what you might call sort of traditional ethnographies that I looked at, books that people had published about time that they'd spent in universities alongside students. Um, there's a great quote there <laughs> which comes from um, Moffat's book, so the students have no idea what the professors spend their time doing. Two sophomore friends once admitted to me that they had always privately thought that tenure meant that a faculty member had been around for ten years. Tenure in the UK certainly is not something or a word that we necessarily use anymore. So, but, um, so part of what was motivating these ethnographic studies, and certainly the, the Nathan one, which I'll say a little bit um, more about. Now, um, Rebecca Nathan is a pseudonym, um, and she was actually a professor in the university that um, she was working in, where she decided to do an ethnographic study. And it was actually a piece of covert research. So she went undercover as a student um, in a different, obviously in a different um, faculty to the one that she was teaching in, in the university. Um, and so she attended classes for a whole year and essentially lived the life of a student. Um, and she said that, you know, despite her age and the fact that, you know, she might have looked kind of strange or could have been outed as, you know, not a real student, she said that, I find out quite unwittingly that if I walked like a duck, quacked like a duck, then people thought I was a duck. So she actually found it, from her accounts anyway, quite easy to kind of um, fit into the environment that she was um, living in as a student. And I should say she, she stayed in halls as well. So she did for that whole year. And part of what was motivating her was, you know, that kind of quote where, you know, the students um, 
as she perceived it, didn't really have an understanding necessarily of what academic life was about. And likewise, she felt that she didn't really understand what student life was about, although she was spending all of her time, um, or a lot of her time, with students. So that motivated her to, to go on and do this research. Um, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, and I think is a, a key challenge around ethic, ethnographic research, particularly of this kind, where it was covert, is some of the ethical challenges. Um, obviously, it's a pseudonym that she's used, um, and obviously the university's not mentioned. But still, you know, there was a lot of deception involved in terms of the students that she was involved with um, for that year. So I think it does raise some, some kind of interesting questions around the ethics of, of doing that. Yeah. Was that a double pseudonym? So that was a pseudonym, not of herself as a professor, and not of herself as a student either. Yeah. So that's not her real name, Rebecca Nathan. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So we still, I think, to this day, don't know who she actually is. A professor of anthropology at a university in the U.S. I should have said that this took place in the U.S. Oops. Jumping forward. Um. Okay, and then I won't say much about this, but I do think it's a fascinating area for ethnographic work to think about the virtual world and the way that we can use new technologies to, to kind of understand um, cultures and, and, and people's lives, um, and particularly some of this research, which is looking at students and student learning, um, and kind of understanding that much more from um, their interactions online, as well as kind of more traditional methods of data collection. So, I mean, there might be people that have some experience of this. Um, I haven't at the moment, but I, I, I will do in the project that I'm, I'm just starting off with. But I think it's a, an interesting area to think about how we can use these new technologies um, in order to think more about sort of creative ways, I guess, of collecting data and of understanding um, you know, what's happening in the, the sort of lives of students within institutions. Okay, so the second kind of broad area that I looked at was around universities and disciplinary organisation and cultures. And this kind of fits a bit more within my own sort of predominant research area. So I've started off, I used the work of Bourdieu quite a lot, so often I do start off with quotations from Bourdieu. But I particularly like this, so it comes from the preface of his book, um, Homo Academicus. Um, and he talks about the notion of a book for burning. Um, and it basically gets to that idea of the sense in which, you know, as researchers in higher education, to what extent, you know, could we be accused of, you know, kind of undermining our own institutions? Um, obviously, he saw that as a good thing. You know, he saw that as a challenge. Um, but it does create, potentially, as Alveson's work has shown as well, you know, sort of issues around, you know, what might be seen as the problems or the problematics of exposing, as he says, at these kind of backstage conditions within universities. Um, and then also thinking about the sort of difficulty often as we talk about in ethnographic research over familiarity and the potentially impossible task of making the familiar strange. Um, I don't think I would describe it as impossible. I do, I do think, though, that it's probably a, a challenge in terms of um, what we're able to do in these situations. Okay, so just to say 
I suppose this is a bit of a plug, not really though, but just so that you know who I am and what kind of research that I do do. Um, I, I did a PhD a few years back which became a book called The Research Game in Academic Life. Um, and I was basically interested in how the research assessment exercise, as it was called at that time, was impacting on institutions and impacting on academic work and identity. Um, and I used um, Bourdieu's work um, to look at that. Um, and again, as, as I say, I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't classify that as ethnographic research. It was predominantly based on interviews with academics and with senior managers. But what I did do, thinking back to the, the quote that I used at the beginning, was I used a lot of documentation. So in terms of you know, Sue Clegg's challenge of getting a sense of that rich context, then you can do that through, I think, also documentary analysis. And I did also um, attend some departmental meetings and kind of hung out in some of the universities that I was researching. But I think, and this is probably one of the challenges for all ethnographic research, what was difficult was the unevenness of access both to documents and also to um, getting access to meetings or ways in which I could kind of take part in university life. So. Um, I mean, I, it's something that I would like to do more of, but I have to say that I did find it quite challenging, particularly um, when I was doing this research on something which, you know, was certainly seen as a quite a sensitive topic. Um, one of the vice chancellors that I ended up interviewing towards the end of the project was actually rather shocked that I was doing the research. And I think if he'd been able to, then he would have stopped it. But fortunately, I had got all of the kind of access agreements up to that point. Um, but when you are researching kind of sensitive topic areas, institutions, you know, might see themselves as competitive. They don't want the kind of backstage um, perception of institutions to be put out there. Um, there are obviously concerns, no matter how much you try to protect confidentiality. Um, so for all those reasons, I think it can be quite difficult to do the kind of in-depth research that we might want to do as part of um, ethnographic work. Um, okay, so a couple of ways around that then, um, just some exam a couple of examples. So the work of, of Alveson then, he, he used what he called self-ethnography but autoethnography, um, essentially. Um, he saw that as, as enabling him then to be able to present what was happening at institutions and kind of gets over the challenge of getting access because obviously you're talking about um, your own experience. Um, he also does though talk about you know some of the challenges around being close and what that affords you um, and potentially perhaps the kind of lack of distance that you might have which might give you some blind spots or you know you might purposely not want to look at things which might be seen as taboo or um, sensitive um, politically. So I think what he would argue is that doing that kind of research can enable you um, to get over the access issue that you can then you know, present um, your own experiences within an institution, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't still the challenges um, around you know, being too close to particular circumstances. Um, and then he also talks about you were saying about authentic um, research, but in these cases, sometimes it can be overly sanitised where you do want to protect that kind of backstage reporting of what's going on um, within universities, essentially within the places that we're all working. You know, it's that kind of sense of 
Bourdieu as a book for Burnling, you know, if we, um, you know, what might be problematic sometimes about, um, you know, drawing attention to some of those difficulties that happen within, within institutions. Um, and then another example is thinking about fictional ethnography. Um, I don't know if people come across this idea before or is it new? Um, so Andrew Sparks um, has also done some work which was looking at the impact of the research assessment exercise on academics and, and academic work and, and careers. And the way he chose to do that was through a kind of ethnographic research within an institution. But what he did then as a way of kind of protecting confidentiality was to present that as a fictional account. So to all intents and purposes, what he was representing um, did reflect what he'd experienced and what he'd heard from colleagues. Um, but the way that he presented it was much more um, creative in terms of how he then put that together. So that does raise some interesting questions, I think, around the whole notion of authenticity and, and what we might mean by that. Um, and I've just got one quote here, but I'm not going to read it all out. But if you see the slides, you can, you can read it for yourself. But I think what's really interesting about it, especially if I compare it to my own research and what I presented, is the kind of rich detail and kind of, as, as, um, as we said, as I said here at the beginning, that notion of the methodology of the heart. So thinking about how you can represent the kind of deep emotion of particular situations through these kind of fictional accounts. Um, so this quotation is basically, it's a, a head of school who's going to speak to a senior management about you know, the situation of putting people forward or not in the research assessment exercise. And you know, he's told quite bluntly at the end that anyone not being put forward, it's going to be a challenge in terms of, of their career. Now, you know, these are circumstances that we might know about um, but having that kind of represented in, in quite a rich way, I think, is, is really interesting thing to do. Okay, have I only got five minutes left? I'm watching that clock. Um, oh, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Because I, I know that I can talk, so I was worried. Late, so take oh, okay, okay. Right, well, it shouldn't be too long. Though. Okay, so... I mean, hopefully that's given you a sense of, you know, the kind of broad scope of thinking about um, ethnographies, different types of ethnographies, the scope of what's been done, as I see it anyway, in higher education and what can be done, and some of the challenges around that. Um, but of course, one of the other interesting aspects of um, this, uh, these sessions and these presentations is to think about it from an international perspective. <laughs> Um, so I'm drawing here on some of the work of colleagues um, at the University of Bristol. Um, and I quite liked, the, they used in their article this term ethnographic dazzle. Has anyone come across that idea before? <laughs> some, some nods in the room. So it's that, the notion of, you know, when you're kind of new or you go into a new circumstance, that you're kind of dazzled by what's different and you focus on what's different rather than necessarily also focusing on where some of the similarities might be to what you might understand from your own context. Um, so I think what's interesting about Elizabeth McNess and her colleagues' article here is that they're kind of troubling this 
um, notion of insider and outsider in, in sort of ethnographic research, participatory research. Um, and talking about, you know, what some of the affordances are in terms of having this kind of international collaboration. So it's really the benefits of that as they see it. So they talk then about researchers are concerned with creating mutual understanding and sharing cross-cultural meaning. So what Crossley has referred to as a bridging of culture and traditions. So in other words, scholars construct meaning out of their own situation and then mediate that meaning to others in the spirit of mutuality and cooperation. So they're kind of talking about how, um, in terms of that sort of close interaction, so someone who might be seen as an insider within a particular um, national or local context and someone who's an outsider coming together might ask very pertinent questions that actually then changes the understanding of both and creates a kind of mutually co-constructed idea of what's happening um, in that situation or how to understand it. Um, and they also talk about researchers having multiple identities that can play out differently um, in different situations. And I think that's another important idea. Um, I might be sounding a little bit too post-structuralist. I don't think they're post-structuralist, but you know, the sense in which you know, being in different circumstances might bring out different aspects of our identities or what we understand um, in key situations. So they, they end up then, rather than talking about insider and outsider, um, coming up with the idea of a kind of third space, a liminal space, um, where this kind of mutual co-construction um, happens. Um, and they're obviously seeing that as a real advantage to doing this kind of in-depth ethnographic work within um, different international contexts. Um, and then just to throw in a little bit about my own um, research again, I've been working for a number of years um, with colleagues Angela Brew and David Bowes in Australia and also Karen Crawford who's at the University of Lincoln in the UK. Um, again, interested in academic work and the impact of you know, sort of changing institutional and national and global circumstances on people's sort of um, career development and decision making around careers. Um, so we were doing a comparative study across Australia and the UK um, and we did interviews and also a, a survey. So again, certainly wouldn't call it um, ethnographic work. It would have been interesting, I think, to do more in-depth work, but you know that was beyond what we could achieve in this project. But one of the things that we did do right at the very start, before we published anything else, was to publish an article which looked at some of the challenges around that kind of international collaboration. Um, and I think you know some of those ideas probably have some resonance to what we would experience um, if we were trying to do sort of more in-depth ethnographic work. So I like that quote that we used from Betty Ramber, um, which uh, what appeared to be agreement was actually a similar spoken language or profoundly different things. Um, so even though you'd think the UK and Australia are not that different, you know, some things could be seen as, as quite similar. Often it was quite surprising just how different um, sort of processes and, and ways of doing things could be. And I've just listed some of the the kind of key things that we talked about um, in the article. So issues around ethics, um, obviously research evaluation regimes, which was a key interest of the project, getting access to participants, um, 
And then obviously, you know, the kind of issue around terminology, what things actually meant, how we understood them, and how we could modify them to be able to use them in different, con uh, different contexts, um, which would, you know, allow us to make those kinds of comparisons. Um, so I think what was interesting, we were using the work of Margaret Archer within the study, and particularly the concept of reflexivity. Um, so what was interesting in terms of what we tried to do with this article was to really you know, focus in on our own reflexive positionings as researchers in that process and to think about the kind of complex interplay of structure and agency in terms of research practice itself, which again relates back to some of the questions you were raising, Emily, about you know, the context of funding and all sorts of other things, which did have you know, profound impacts on what we were able to do. <coughs> Um, and then I'm just going to finish by saying that the, the reason I'm going to South Africa <laughs> very early tomorrow morning um, is as part of a new ESRC um, Newton Research Fund um, project, um, which is around widening participation to higher education. Um, but we're focusing on students who are coming from rural backgrounds and their traditions into HE. And we're using you know, what could be described as a participatory methodology, so again, it's not ethnography, um, but we will be using a whole lot of different multi-modal methods of data collection um, via text, audio, um, video, and different images. And our field work will take place in three different universities in South Africa, but we're also linking up with a broader um, number of, of um, colleagues from different countries in southern Africa. So it's going to be quite a challenging project, I think, and you know, so one of the reasons that I'm glad to be here discussing these issues with you today is that I think I'll probably learn a lot which can help me um, in this project, because obviously we're going to be working across international borders, um, and um, I was just teaching a course last week on understanding educational research and we were talking a lot about decolonizing the curriculum. Obviously the photo that I showed you at the beginning um, gives a sense of you know, the things that are happening in South Africa at the moment with student protests. So it's a very, very interesting, um, but also in some ways potentially can be quite difficult circumstances to be doing research. But I think, you know, all of the kind of important questions that I hope at least I've started to raise and that we'll go on to discuss around um, some of the challenges of doing research in very different um, circumstances in a way where you're trying to understand different cultures um, but obviously trying to do that in a way which I mean I hope um, could be somewhere along the lines of what um, Elizabeth McNess and colleagues had shown around that kind of mutual participation, cooperation, and co-construction of understanding and, and knowledge in these different circumstances. But I think the challenges of doing that are probably um, quite huge. And I think there's some really big issues around, as you were saying, that sense and of people maybe going off to um, different contexts and sort of, you know, maybe feeling like, you know, sort of they're the ones with the funding who are going into a context and then just kind of leaving again with the data. But actually, you know, one of the kind of ethical um, standpoints from this project is very much about, you know, not just what they can learn um, from us, but what we can learn from them, and hopefully, you know, having some kind of positive contribution um, in those circumstances. And I think when you have that as an aim, 
you know, how you carry out the research then is very, very fundamental to ensuring that, you know, you get as close to that kind of ideal as possible. So anyway, I think I've probably talked quite a lot. Um, I've got some references, happy to share the PowerPoints, um, and also happy, obviously, to take questions after Adam's talk. But thank you. Thank you very much.